Raise Green is a seven-episode podcast that explores the climate crisis through the minds of local leaders and global experts. These short, accessible conversations share new ways of working together via personal stories about creating a healthy, just, and sustainable future. As economic disparity, environmental degradation, and social injustices continue emerging as the defining issues of the 21st century, we need solutions that scale faster than the pace of the problems. These conversations ask how. Welcome to Raise Green with Matt Maroney and Franz Hochschwester. Hey, Franz, how's it going today? Hey, Matt. Um, you know, doing, doing pretty well, all things considered. We're tracking this COVID pandemic and uh, seeing a lot of variability in uh, people's outlooks on the economy. But uh, with the election behind us, I think people are feeling a little bit better about the direction that the U.S. is going in terms of stability and international relations. How are you? You know, I'm good. I'm good. You used a key word there, which is thinking. And, you know, I'm sitting here watching the snow, thinking to myself, what is intelligence? Does it really exist? You know, as a linguistics undergrad, I spent a lot of time working on and thinking about language and what, what it means to our species as sort of the, there are a few other species that, that use language, but um, it really is our human claim to uh, validity of our general intelligence. And one of our foremost thinkers um, of, of the, the generation uh, is John Clippinger, a truly renowned scientist and innovator in the space of uh, linguistics and cognitive intelligence. Dr. Clippinger is a graduate of Yale University and holds a PhD from University of Pennsylvania. He was co-director of the Law Lab at Harvard, as well as a researcher at the MIT Media Lab, City Sciences Group. He's co-edited and authored many books, uh, many of them are academic, but some are in the popular domain, for example, From Bitcoin to Burning Man and Beyond, as well as A Crowd of One, The Future of Individual Identity. On top of that, he has a great sense of humor and offers expert comments on monetary policy and how automation is changing all of that. Right. And just last week, Bloomberg actually put out a report um, that suggests that in order to stay well below two degrees, the global economy needs to deploy around 78 to $130 trillion in investment in clean electricity and green hydrogen um, um, and, and other uh, renewable technologies between now and 2050 to re reduce emissions. And so with the pandemic causing such economic depression and challenges across the country, not to mention the health challenges. And with Biden's Build Back Better plan being very carefully picked over, and now, uh, of course, the important work of implementing that, having begun with their transition team, there's so much flying around about a green stimulus and what it means to build back from the setbacks that are besetting us. Um, and John is such a forward thinker about where finance is going that we figured you'd be a great guest to, to bring on and uh, talk about a number of these topics. Let's get him on the line and have a chat. Hey there, guys. How are you? Hey, John. Hey, John. Great to talk to you. Yeah, so yeah. 
as usual, I'm really excited to talk to you both on a personal and professional level. It's always a pleasure. Same, same, you guys. We're we're on the same wavelength here. <laughs> well, John, it's a distinct pleasure to have you on today, and you're world-renowned as a, a thought leader in many spaces, but one that has been particularly top of mind as of late uh, amidst all of these uproarious economic shocks as a result of the, the pandemic is monetary policy. And I'm wondering if you can kind of kick us off with a, a, our, our first question of what is going on with monetary policy right now? Well, I think it's fascinating what happens. And it is indicative, I think, of, of the sort of systemic strains or failures of the system. But, you know, when you have a the head of the central bank, basically the Federal Reserve, uh, issuing up to $6 trillion just of printing rate money, uh, unprecedented, I think, at any time. And that you still have a contraction now. We saw 33% of the economy is contracting. And that then you have a, a need for a stimulus that's not going to happen. They're passing up on the, the unemployment payment support. You have all this combination of factors, I think, that are completely distorting the markets. So you have a lot of that, that money. You have, actually, you have, you have the Fed buying debt off the bigger companies. So they're benefiting from it. I just think that it's not only exposing the cracks in the system, but accentuating them. And I don't think that there is an easy way to recover from this. I was talking to a colleague who's a very successful investor and runs a private hedge fund. And, you know, he, he's, his view is that he's going to gold. <laughs> he's shorting the dollar. And his, and his view is that there's just no way that you're going to, you're not, you're not going to have a, a huge collection of, of inflation. So he's taking out a lot of debt because he says it's cheap as it is currently be. I think even that doesn't ignore sort of the more systemic problems because he's thinking, Oh, well, at some point you have a recovery and you have inflation and the economy will kick over. But you know, that, that recovery model is such that there's such a structural problem in the jobs that it's an 80% service market and, and people can't go back to work. I don't think that the COVID is going to disappear by the first quarter of next year. So you're, you're going to have the, and, and I think there are other systemic failures or weaknesses in the economy. So I think this is forces everything to a head. And you know that in our prior conversations, I, I just think that our current form of extractive capitalism is, is predicated on ideas that are way past their time. And that we need to evolve to a whole new kind of economic system. And that we're being forced to do that. I also think that China, and talking to people at China, what they're doing with their own, the RIMBI being able to try to position that as a reserve currency, a digital exchange system, what they're doing in their blockchain, they're trying to position themselves for the future. So I think there's going to be further pressure on the U.S. dollar uh, as a reserve currency, probably not will survive as a reserve currency. So I think we're, we're going to hit some tumultuous changes. And I just don't think the traditional box of tools that people uh, rely upon are, are there anymore. They're not even there. I mean, you can't, you're going negative interest rates. And the, the stock market is totally disconnected. And so you just have these massive distortions. So <laughs> other than that, that's good. Not much going on. Right. But, you know, this is something we all saw coming. This is, this is not a huge surprise, but it, it really makes people think about how do you restructure and refinance debt? I mean, is it going to be the old way 
where you're going to have the, the banks, the mega wealthy, be able then to offload the costs onto the public and have them pick it up again. I don't think that's going to happen. And I think it's going to force a new kind of way of looking at absorbing debt and underwriting debt. And that sort of leads into some of the thinking that we have around, you know, um, the reflexive mutual organization concept and distributed finance. Before we talk about the future, I was hoping maybe you could talk a bit about the past. I think you had a really interesting history in kind of starting with linguistics and being kind of witness to the to the birth of kind of some of the first applied AI and prediction, particularly related to monetary policy. And My background is in sort of computational linguistics, and, and I got really interested in sort of how you can model how people uh, understand. I think language... I, I have a, a really strong view on, on what constitutes intelligence or is, if such a thing really exists in a general form. But at least the thing that the, there's distinctive to human beings that no one else does and all our species do is language. So that if you can characterize language, uh, then you can actually make some claim as to the validity of a, having some kind of very general intelligence. But without going on the deep end of this, I mean, I think the whole field of linguistics has gotten distorted itself because you've got people, natural language processing NLP using huge data sets and very sort of little a minimum of rules is allow you to do a lot of matching, template matching, which passes for, for natural language understanding. And I think we've really not, we've not really begun to crack that nut. I think there are ways of cracking it, but they're, they're not there right now. And I think the new concept of what it calls self-organizing grammars and, and, and have systems actually learn and acquire language, I think that's within the realm, but it's not part of the mainstream. Right now, if you look at all these sort of chatbots and things like that, they're all built upon some kind of Bayesian models. And I have friends who are involved, Peter Novik, who's uh, you know, led it for Google. He was, he, I remember a long time ago, he said, gee, you know, it's really interesting. We have very simple rules and huge data sets, and we can be able to get matches. But Chomsky's objection to all this approach still holds. And what he did syntactic structures is so that, that that kind of Markov model doesn't really work for grammars. But nonetheless, I think that is a field that could open up with the proper kind of techniques. Vis-a-vis -vis Wall Street and some of the stuff that I've done in the past and the early AI, yeah, we're very early into it. I was early into it with Dow Jones when they were really the first uh, sort of data-driven information company, uh, this guy named Bill Dunn who uh, was wanted, he really wanted to be the Bloomberg and he wanted to take, this is, you had Dow Jones information, he had your Wall Street Journal and he wanted to be the next Bloomberg. He was a wild man. He was, uh, he was, um, you know, he had his motorcycle and his Porsche and, he, and, 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 and quite an attitude. Uh, you never knew what he was going to say in a congressional hearing. And so they, they didn't go with him, but we had worked with him and doing a, a I did a, version of the Wall Street Journal was in hypertext. You could have the whole thing hypertext and then uh, linked. And then that was way before any of that was happening. Bitmap graphics was very early. But one of the more interesting relevant episodes is that from that we developed a program, the Black-Scholes model uh, for trading and hedging. And had it on a, on a um, I'm trying to think what machine it was. It was bitmap graphics. It could have been, a, I don't think it was a symbolics machine. Took it to Lehman Brothers, all their trading group, uh, and uh, we could simulate the market. We could simulate the spreads. We could send it ahead, you know, the butter, all, all the, and it, and the guy got up, and uh, 
had his suspenders on and a white collar and a big black cigar and a classic trader. And he said, my name's Hank the Crank. And you guys from Cambridge are full of shit. He said, go back to Cambridge. Software will never come into the marketplace. And, and there's no reason for this kind of stuff. It was really, it was fascinating. You know, it was, it, it was, it was a real eye-opener for me. It was, well, you know, the customer's always right. These guys know what they're doing. And previously, we had done a, a program with Forleyman Brothers on uh, interest rate swaps. Uh, and that was reasonably successful. And that was the LIBOR stuff. And that was, that was probably suited to the symbolics machine. But these guys were just so close-minded. And then uh, Goldman, uh, then Goldman Sachs, this guy named Fisher Black, Black Scholes model, and then he came on and he, and it completely transformed it. I think the, the, the object lesson here is that, uh, you have very powerful entrenched interests that don't have to change. And so they, they, they persist and, and, and hold on to their, their, their ignorance, their bias. Um, and then it takes something to just blow it apart. Well, it's deeply inspirational. Having been a, a linguistics undergrad, I, I'm a big fan of, of that early work on generative grammar. And John, so from generative grammar to generative outcomes on infrastructure and finance, you published this paper recently on reflexive mutual series LLCs from inanimate to animate mechanisms for autonomous value generation and retention. What is a reflexive mutual LLC, series LLC? Well, let, let, me, let me put it in the context of what, are, what we're trying to achieve and why that particular organization. And you, you alluded to it uh, in just referencing generative grammars and generative infrastructures. The whole idea of generativity and things that can generate value is just not price exchange system, but actually things that are designed, and particularly living things that are designed for value creation. And, and, and what's interesting about living things is that, that they're unique. Each thing is unique. They're defined about a particular outcome and cure, that creates that. So part of that thinking is that how do you take that idea of designing systems that are designed for kind of outcomes that have, they're not like a market clearing, there's sort of a sense of homeostasis. And um, that I think is, is, is a, a different way of understanding things. I think the idea is, is, is to move away from extractive systems that create negative externalities and design system from the beginning that are designed to achieve those outcomes without the externalities. And that, by that, I mean, have something that it itself is organized around uh, being able to not, not only sort of reduce carbon, but actually not create carbon, maybe capture carbon from the carbon capture point of view. But also you can look at other kind of, other kind of outcomes, positive rights, that you have something that's designed to create equity. Um, and so you're designing a system to adjust its behavior in order to achieve those outcomes in a measurable way. So there's a feedback loop and they, and they keep progressing and acting in, in that performance. So the idea of a reflexive mutual organization basically is, is, is to say, well, how do we capture the value within the organization rather than having it be extracted out by various investors? So how do you take sort of fiat capital and be able to bring that energy into the system uh, and convert it into energy that can be displayed among different kinds of asset classes that generate value within the network, within the mutual organization, and then be able to then go to there uh, and be able to uh, 
retain that, build up reserve value, um, and and uh, in this case, in the, it, all members of the mutual organization. So if one thinks of, of sort of Vanguard um, as sort of the quintessential mutual organization uh, that really disrupted the um, the uh, the financial services market, the particularly you know the mutual fund market, it was it was organized as a mutual organization. It was owned by its members, the different funds. It was organized to reduce costs, to translate value back into the membership. Um, and, uh, and so that's sort of the, the, the principle that we have. Um, and so in setting one of these things up, uh, you're, you're creating a, a, basically a capital structure that is sort of uh, the reverse of your traditional, uh, say, uh, startup capital, venture capital group, where the, the liquidation preferences accrue to the, the investors, you basically have to set up liquidation preferences that accrue to the, the network, to the community, to the mutual organization. Uh, and um, so enable that to pay off, basically you can pay off a bill and by paying off the bill, you can get ownership of the asset and build up other value within the network to, to, to invest in other assets and combinations of assets. Makes sense to me. I mean, it sounds like a good idea. I think we should get started on it. Well, I mean, I think we're now kind of pursuing this in a number of different contexts. I've got a pretty good response to this. And I think the question is how to do the implementation. And so I have a, a PhD student at the Media Lab who's very good in AI, sort of how to design that and how to create, design the incentive system, sort of basically the capital structure for that. I think the, the legal framework is it's pretty self-evident. There's an experiment in Seattle that's following a lot of these principles itself. So I think we're getting a chance to really explore that. And I, I, I just see this as a trend to move into it's not just distributed systems, it's distributed self-organizing living systems that by design create certain kinds of value outcomes. And I think that's a new design point that we can achieve. Yeah, I think it's really eloquent. Uh, I really enjoy your idea of uh, transition from a mechanistic or industrial capitalism to a biological capitalism, I think it really creates a framework for us to hang some of these ideas on. Yeah, and I'm working on a book on this, and actually that's what part of my writing right now is how to, to spell out those theories. Um, and when you start to contrast the, the, the analytic framework between sort of me mechanistic capitalism, which was, you know, capitalism was a product of the 17th, 18th century <clears throat> physics, and that was, there was an animal systems. Um, and now we have biology and animal system, complexity systems, and systems that are constantly communicating and self-regulating. They're not these systems that just, you know, they, they, they fail and then reset. I mean, uh, uh, they die. And, and I think if we're going to have a living planet, we have to have living systems. We have to have ways of organizing ourselves so they're compatible and reinforce the life component of the planet. Um, and, and I don't think we have any choice but to do that. Yeah, look, couldn't agree more about that. One of the units that you discuss in, in your paper yeah. is this concept of a node, a sort of network of uh, reflexive mutual series LLCs. Can you say more about what a node is? Yeah, one way of framing it is that, and this is the importance of the biological model, is when you think of things holistically. 
and that a node is more like a social stem cell. <laughs> I mean, there's certain components of it that have to be self-sustaining and, and it has its own metabolism. So it's not just a single thing. It's not a mechanical thing. We really want to make it an autocatalytic thing. So yes, the node and the concept of reflection mutual organizations are very complementary. When we think of nodes, we're thinking of, say, going into cities and identifying a coherent region within a city that can be a self-sustaining network of all sort of the key components that, that are needed to create a living organism in that city. It's where you, it's not just the energy, it's not just the housing, it's the food, it's the mobility, it's how these things work together to create a kind of civic homeostasis. And how do you create the proper incentive mechanisms, the right kinds of tokens, that uh, the issuance of tokens and reward systems that maintain that balance? So yes, you could consider that it'd be a circular economy, but then nodes can be interoperable with other nodes. So rather than looking at, at cities as sort of static grids, you're looking at these, these more like these vibrant, networks that are interconnected and have different forms of interoperability and interconnectivity and there's a circulation between them that can be modulated through the sort of the the the, the membranes between them or the the uh, and those membranes could be permissions there's lots of ways of implementing these things but this is all sort of very consistent with thinking uh within sort of looking at complex adaptive systems models or even computational biology there's lots of ways of implementing these things but this is all sort of very consistent with thinking uh, within sort of looking at complex adaptive systems models or even computational biology. Oh, awesome, awesome, I love it. Speaking of value creation, I wanted to ask you, how do you think that things like verifiable metrics is things we hear a lot from impact investing. How do you think verifiable metrics can actually attract institutional capital to create these nodes and really to facilitate a, a, a transition? I, I think this is one of the most important things we need to focus on. Um, and just to put it in a, in a broader perspective, in, in a sense that you have a whole industrial economy based upon and denominated in the fossil economy with certain character. And we have to take that, that those funds of value and translate it into this new vital economy, uh, value economy. And um, the only way you're going to be able to do that is be able to verify, independently verify the impact that those have. But not only that, the impact of value generation. Um, that, that by so investing in, in, in allocating capital into these new networks, you'll get better returns, but more resilient returns. I think the, 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 the part of the thinking here is that of, of resiliency, that you want to build systems that are not fragile. Get looking forward to what's happening, not only so the COVID, the COVID economic issues, but also the climate issues. What does it mean to have resilient systems that people can have security and safety and predictability uh, of an income, of a housing, of food, of, of a viable, sustainable climate? What are the design parameters around that? And how do I measure that? And how do I measure that in such a way that's independently verifiable? It's not captured that different institutions are willing to invest in. So there's roughly like $22 trillion in allocated to these ESG funds. Now, the 
ESG funds are really sort of a scorecard for companies that feel good about themselves, but they don't really are tied to independent metrics. Now, there's a recognition of a need to do that. And I think where you're starting to see that, and this is what we started with our company called Switch, is doing a verification of production of sustainable energy off of solar panels, the kind of work that you're doing and saying, well, wait, we can actually validate that a quote, a green electron was created at this time of day in this way. And again, and I can create a renewable energy credit and that can be traded. So someone's doing power purchase agreements and they're trying to manage a, a, a their own consumption of energy, production consumption energy, they can purchase these things. And that creates an exchange. And that can be independently verified. That part is going to say, yeah, that's a valid credential then I can rely upon it. Well, I think you can not only do it for energy, but you can do it for multiple asset classes. So you can do it for housing and, and use around equity issues. And so you get people like PNB Paribu, who are actually doing this thing in housing, giving better credit to companies that meet certain ESG outcomes. I think it'll be in the interest in the investment community to have better models of returns. I mean, a lot of the, the, the numerics, you know, earnings per share and all, all the stuff that they, they, they use are, are, are sort of magic numbers, <laughs> really. Uh, and uh, I think if, if they're really tied to, to uh, evidence-based IoT outputs and we're going to validate those, the capital comes screaming in. And instead of having your classic, say, a Bloomberg terminal, you will have your, your uh, sort of your digital twin of a community and out and see what the inputs outputs are and be able to model different outcomes and get better and better models. I think we're moving into that world. Seems as though they, they will know now, uh, now that you've enlightened us all with the, uh, this very, very illuminating discussion. So thank you so much, John. Well, I always love working with you guys and best of luck in what you're doing. Thanks, well, we John. can't, can't thank you enough for all your, uh, guidance. Well, can't thank you for what you're doing too. You're doing the right stuff. All right. Well, Looking forward to coming back to the farm soon. All right, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. One of the ideas I really enjoyed from the conversation was with John is that capitalism is really a product of 17th, 18th century physics of inanimate mechanical systems. We weren't even aware of self-regulating biological systems. And if we're going to have a living planet we need to have living economic systems yeah i mean his his breadth of of knowledge on the global economy and what it means for individuals and communities is is really highlighted and i think one thing that we at raise green have always thought about and that john's been helpful in advising and looking at is um you know how do we create a toolbox um that is set to enable an inclusive capitalism um, as opposed to the existing extractive capitalist model that's predicated on some of those long outdated ideas. And so I was always encouraged and, and encouraged again to hear him talk about how we can do that in a, a generative way that builds toward outcomes that you know, are really needed all across the country and the world. You know, communities as well as the governments are finding that their traditional toolbox of economic and monetary tools are disappearing because this idea of extractive capitalism is predicated on ideas that are long outdated. Um, John is one of the most foremost thinkers in advancing ideas of new models of 
community value uh, and really thinking about the outcomes communities want to see and directing all of the reinvestment we need to build back better into those communities. Uh, the question is, how do you take that idea and design outcomes that are community-led and community-owned? Currently in the market, there's estimated to be about $23 trillion flowing into environmental, social, and governance uh, screened investment opportunities, or, or what has previously been called socially responsible investment. And businesses operating in manufacturing or services have really come to rely on those ESG scores uh, to highlight their internal values. And I think what John um, is, is one of the leading thinkers on and has been so helpful in elucidating is that, you know, those scores really are, are geared towards uh, something that's, that's uh, in the past and that we need to, we need to have more and better information. And I think um, a lot of the ways that he's thinking about uh, bringing in community metrics and um, local organizations that have autonomy uh, to define what they believe and feel is wealth and value uh, is is the future of finance. And so it's, it's always great to, to hear that from him.